in the talk yesterday evening, I was likening a retreat to a beginning of an adventure. In the sense that every retreat is for us a journey with its own unique flavor. Not only is every retreat a journey with its own unique flavor, but really every sitting is that for us. Every sitting has its own kind of impression, its own way of unfolding, its own story to tell us. And every time we begin that journey, whether it's on the level of beginning a single sitting or beginning a single retreat, there is a need for us really each time to have a kind of renewal of spirit in which we approach that sitting or a renewal of spirit in which we approach that retreat. There's never a single sitting or a single retreat that is helped in any way by us carrying to it the baggage of the last sitting or the last retreat. For it to be an experience which is truly just about right now, we need to be able to let go of that baggage of anticipation or expectation or fear and apprehension and really renew our own sense of openness and willingness to learn. Part of the renewal of spirit also, which is called for, is also a renewal of our own sense of intention and motivation in that sitting, our own willingness to learn and our own openness to a sense of possibility. And it's this area of intention or motivation and also the area of trust or faith that I would especially like to address in the talk this evening. One of the major differences between the Mahayana and the Theravada tradition of Buddhism amongst many other differences, is the differing emphasis that is placed upon the importance that motivation or intention actually plays in our practice. We've all heard probably many times the, the various stories, Mahayana stories, of people who want to sit and want to receive teachings in the Dharma and these, these Zen stories about how these students or prospective students are made to stand outside the gates of the monasteries for months and years until they're finally admitted um, and then often only admitted to be sent to the kitchens to clean the rice or something. How often in the Mahayana tradition that to receive teaching in the Dharma is considered a great privilege and a great honor. And to receive teaching one actually has to really express and exhibit a great sense of dedication and commitment. 
And in my own training, where I began in Mahayana Buddhism, I arrived in a, in a small Tibetan village looking for a teacher and, of course, had a kind of um, Western or personal arrogance that expected that all I actually needed to do was to kind of sign up and I would be uh, taught everything I wanted to know. And I remember it took me very much by surprise that upon requesting the only teacher who was there in this village for teaching, he, he said no and, and sent me away. And how over a period of two months I would make this, this pilgrimage to his cottage to be asked if he would teach me. And basically every day he would say no and he would send me away and I would come back again the next day. Of course, by this time I really thought he had something very special to teach me. If it was so secret and so reluctantly dispensed, I was becoming more and more intent on, on subscribing. And finally, one day after about two months, he, he gave me a box of noodles. And that box of noodles meant that I was accepted as a student. And I never have really figured out whether there's any esoteric significance in the noodles, but they were gratefully received. But again, having read, of course, various Tibetan books, I expected to be immediately initiated into the higher realms of tantric teaching. And instead, I was essentially asked to do months of... Uh, mantras, prostrations, visualizations, and reflection. That reflection was meant to be my primary um, form of practice, certainly for the first six months or so that I was with this teacher. And the reflections that I was asked to do, to spend day after day doing, were essentially reflections that were intended to cultivate certain parameters, or certain qualities of mind and heart that would actually help to make me more open um, and appreciative and sensitive to the teachings that were being offered. And one of the reflections I remember doing for a period of many weeks was just to sit every day and think about a blind tortoise swimming in an ocean that had one golden ring floating on it. And every thousand years the tortoise would come to the surface of the ocean. And what were the chances of the tortoise actually surfacing underneath this golden ring? Now, you can appreciate that, you know, after many weeks, the reflection actually gets a little dull. Um, but the, it also became clear that the chances were not that many, that the tortoise was actually going to surface underneath this golden ring. The point was to understand the preciousness of the Dharma, to understand what a rare an unique opportunity it was to be able to sit, to be able to listen 
true teachings are great. The ancient teachings are great wisdom. And to appreciate the possibilities that that teaching would offer to me. Another reflection we were asked to do for many weeks was to consider that in the grand kind of cosmic wheel of life that there was every possibility that any sentient being we could see or connect with had at one time been our mother. It's possible. And how would we wish then in that light to treat all the beings in the world how would we wish to relate to them in the light of their possibly having been our mother and this reflection actually was intended to cultivate not only a very profound sense of ethical care and dignity and compassion in our lives it was also intended really to understand that the practice was to relieve not only my suffering or dissatisfaction but was to empower me to be able to contribute to the relief of all suffering just as we would wish to end the suffering or pain if our, we were to find our mother in pain or suffering. Now many Westerners had a lot of trouble there was only a small group of us but a number of people had a great deal of trouble with this reflection and I remember the look of bewilderment on, on the Geshe's face when one of the Westerners said that the Geshe, I don't even like my mother now how, how am I supposed to think of all sanity beings I don't even like my own mother <laughs> and the purpose really the purpose of all of this reflection was to open the heart and the mind. The purpose of these reflections was not to exercise an already over-exercised or overburdened mind, but instead to cultivate within each one of us who are students of Geshe a sense of great dedication and commitment to the practice, to cultivate a great sincerity of being and a great undistractedness of vision of why we practiced of how profound the practice actually was and also to cultivate through those reflections a kind of motivation and intentions that were really in line with that vision of what the Dharma offered that the practice really was to bring to an end all pain and all conflict to contribute to the end of all suffering in the world and the liberation of all beings. The reflections were also to cultivate really a profound sense of trust in the practice and trust in our own sense of possibility. Now, in the Theravadan tradition of Buddhism, the tradition of meditation, as you know, very little emphasis is placed on this kind of prior development of vision, of, of uh, 
dedication, of motivation. Basically, you know, if you have the the inclination or the curiosity and the money and the backside to sit on, you can sign up for a retreat and you're there. There's none of this kind of um, acceptance process involved. That open-hearted welcome that is so much a part of the Vipassana tradition, so much a part of meditation, is, is not in any way a denial or a negation of the importance of motivation. It's not a negation of the importance of trust in any way. Really, I feel that open-hearted welcome that's so much part of this tradition is really a statement of trust that if you sit, if you practice, all the motivation you need, all the trust you need, all the sincerity that you need, is going to be born of your own experience in the practice. That this is not something you need to do ahead of time, that it will develop through your own experience and your own wisdom. Now, I feel, having had experience, some experience, of Vasa Mahayana and Theravadan traditions, that there are really pros and cons to both of these approaches. There is no doubt that in the Mahayana tradition, with this great emphasis that is placed on cultivating faith and motivation and intention, that many yogis are born of that tradition who are incredibly sincere and dedicated and committed. There are also a number of aspiring yogis who just don't have the time don't have the faith, don't have the inclination to be able to go through this long and rigorous training procedure before they receive any teaching. But it is also true that in, the, in this practice, in the Theravadan practice or in the Vipassana practice, that when we come to this practice with a limited sense of vision of what we want or what we expect, from this practice. It's very easy for meditation to become very neurotic. It's very easy for meditation to become kind of a uh, self-obsession. You know, how am I going to improve myself? How am I going to uh, overcome my great realm of imperfections? And you know, how am I going to transcend this and become a better person? It's very easy when the practice has a limited, is approached with a limited sense of vision for one's experience of the practice also to become quite limited. And in that, also to become a, a kind of um, enlightened neurosis. You know, that everything, you know, there's, there's, it's ethical, there's a lot of integrity, there's a lot of sincerity, but it's all about me. It is also true, I feel, that where we come to this practice without vision and a very uh, committed sense of intention, doubt is one of the most frequent burdens that we're going to encounter. And that doubt is something that we will encounter often in the face of obstacles, in the face of difficulties, that we will 
find ourselves experiencing a great deal of discouragement and disillusionment. Trust. Trust is an essential ingredient in meditation. I would use the word faith, but I've come to understand that many people have a lot of trouble with the word faith. And there's a lot of kind of recovering Catholics recovering Church of England people who have been beaten through their lives with the need to have faith and you know great walls of resistance arise whenever they hear the word faith so will we use the word trust if it makes you feel better trust is an essential ingredient in this practice there is no question that in meditation Doubt is the most paralyzing and debilitating state of mind that's possible to experience. But we would also need to question. It's very easy to talk about the need for trust or the need for faith. It's not so easy for us to find it. Where does trust come from? Where does the very deep, heartfelt sense of trust come from? What can we base it on? You know, if you've lived a life where you've experienced a great deal of disillusionment, a great deal of disappointment, where you've been hurt or let down by other people, by teachers, by traditions, what do you have to base trust upon? And where can it come from? And it is also true that there are qualities of trust qualities of faith which are actually not at all helpful to us. Now some people come to meditation, they have a very devotional nature. Now there's nothing wrong with having a very devotional nature. This can be a very beautiful way of exploring this practice and exploring understanding. But it is also true that when we have a very devotional nature without an equal balance of discriminating wisdom, we tend to look for somewhere to focus that devotion upon someone or something to have faith in outside of ourselves. And for some people, of course, it's focused upon a teacher. These are the, usually the ones who become either the, the kind of welcoming or not so willing recipients of devotion. When devotion is focused upon a teacher, it's a setup for a great deal of difficulty. We expect perfection. Many of us like have found in our lives that we look for heroes, recently heroines, more often heroes. And it is very true that in looking for heroes there is often a tendency for a kind of blind elevation of different people onto pedestals. That they are our models. They are who we want to become. That's who we want to be like. They are the embodiment of wisdom or the embodiment of compassion. And so often it's been experienced that the degree to which teachers are elevated is also the degree to which they become villains. When our, we're disappointed, when our expectations are frustrated, when we feel disillusioned in any way, 
and then our faith or our trust that quickly turns into pain the pain of disappointment and the suffering of disillusionment and it is also so true that the more that we look up is the degree to which we do not look inwardly we become so busy listening to others that we can easily become quite deafened to listening to ourselves for some people their devotion is not so much person-centered because it's very hard actually to find someone who's perfect um, instead the devotion tends to be much more focused upon a technique and this is such a trap in the spiritual world how many debates are raised about who has the only way the better way and who has the direct way and who has the, the kind of hotline to truth endless kind of arguments and yet how easily it is I don't know maybe you've never been a convert for me in my life I've been a convert several times and it's a very illuminating experience to be a convert to a technique you know that you really feel you know how righteous you can feel when you belong to the real way and how they condemning and judging of others and sometimes our level, we gain so much security from our identification with the real way that even if it has become empty for us, we still go through the motions because we don't want to let go of that security. It's a little bit like the that story of, the, of a bear, who, a wild bear was captured by some hunters and he was sold to a zoo and he was taken from the wild forest and put in a cage in a zoo and he spent several years there and he learned that people would come along and feed him and he learned too that you know if he learned to do certain tricks he would get better food and better treatment so he was there learned to do all kinds of things you know turn somersaults and stand on his head and one day some people came and they liberated this bear and they took him back to the forest and kind of sat there in this clearing in the forest waiting waiting for something to happen after one nobody came so he started doing somersaults he said standing on his head and these other bears came out and they said what are you doing he says well you can see I'm doing somersaults I'm standing on my head and pretty soon someone will come, and come along and feed me then the bear said to me you dummy this is the wild forest no one rewards you here for doing tricks you have to learn to find your own way in meditation there is no such thing as a real way or a higher way or an only way everyone's journey is unique we are unique there is no standard map they're not a little scary because there is no standard map we cannot possibly sit here and say with great authority that on the second day of a retreat you will experience this and on the third day of a retreat you will experience this and on the fifth day you will have this kind of experience and the seventh day you will have this kind of insight, insight we cannot say that with any kind of authority because there is no standard map and so there are no standard signposts and this practice is about learning to be our own teacher we don't need anything more than we have we have our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our spirit
stories, our experience, and the present moment. The only thing we actually need is to learn how to listen. And every understanding that is important to us will be born of that. Faith or trust certainly needs to be <coughs> more than just a devotional kind of faith towards someone or something. And developing trust in this practice, in developing trust in this practice, it is the why the area of intention, the area of motivation is so important. Now, our motivations for doing this change constantly. You know, you can come into a retreat with one kind of intention, one kind of motivation. At the end of the first week, it'll be totally different. You won't even recognize that one anymore. Our motivations change as we deepen in wisdom, as our own experience opens. Initially, the motivation for most people in meditation is dissatisfaction. I doubt if everybody was really delighted with their lives and their minds, their hearts, that they would be here. Maybe a few. But often there is dissatisfaction. Sometimes lukewarm. Sometimes a crisis. Dissatisfaction is not necessarily a suffering type of dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction can simply be born of a sense of unexplored possibility. That is a kind of dissatisfaction. That there are possibilities, potential within us, that we haven't yet come to understand deeply, and so we refuse to be satisfied with the way things are. Now, to me, this is quite a mature dissatisfaction. You know, there's a kind of immature dissatisfaction that says, you know, oh, you know, I, I don't like the way I am, I don't like my world, I don't like myself, and it's all your fault, and I, you know, it's all the fault of somebody else, and I need to change this and change that. That's a kind of immature dissatisfaction. But there is a quality of mature dissatisfaction, which is not necessary that you have any suffering in your life whatsoever, but a sense of possibility, a sense of potential that is not yet realized. This dissatisfaction or this sense of possibility brings us here. It brings us to explore what is possible for us. It is also true that this motivation that initially brings us to a retreat, that the bottom line of it is really, it is about personal change. It is about personal revelation. Sometimes it's concerned with personal improvement. Now, this motivation that is so, um, so clearly linked to a very personal sense of why we do meditation, it, it is understandable. It's totally understandable. It's totally human. But it's also a motivation that can pose really a number of problems for us. You've seen it in the meditation. As you develop the practice, how you can be so filled with trust and filled with motivation and filled with inspiration and faith when the practice is going really well. You know, when you come in the meditation room and you have a great sitting, you know, your mind is calm and your body's happening and happy and your insights are flowering and 
you know, and you feel so loving towards everybody and yourself. You think, you know, that meditation is just the greatest thing that ever happened. You know, and you feel so motivated. You can't wait till the next sitting begins. You might not have had this experience yet. So far. <laughs> but it, it may come. And how we feel so strong, so strong in our, in our trust and so strong in, in our faith. But I really notice also how quickly that motivation and that inspiration and that trust simply dissolves the first time that we, or the next time that we come into a sitting. It's so hard, you know, your knees ache and your mind aches, you know, and everything aches and it's all miserable and it's raining and, oh, you know, you can't wait for it to be open and you dread the sound of the bell. You know, you have to get a phobia about the sound of the bell. It's going to happen again. And how often those moments, just faith, trust, motivation, inspiration, you don't even know what they mean anymore. They're just dissolved. And how much then our, our own sense of, of motivation, our own senses of intention, is related to signposts to the fulfillment of expectations, to the fulfillment of demands, to our retreats unfolding according to our own agenda. This is what motivation that's based upon personal change is all about, and it's what happens when motivation is based solely upon personal change, when that is our vision of the practice. Signposts simply become too important. What we call a good sitting becomes a sign of progress and well, ushers in great trust and inspiration. Difficulty becomes a sign of failure and ushers in doubt. And then we constantly find ourselves swinging between these extremes of despair and excitement. Good and bad, progress and regression, success and failure. When we find ourselves doing this, it is not a sign that something's wrong with our practice. It is more telling us that we have lost some sense of vision about why we are here, about what this practice offers to us, about what we have, the ways in which we're able to learn and to grow. Trust in meditation needs to have a much more substantial foundation than just these extremes of gain and loss, of success and failure. Trust and inspiration needs to be rooted in vision. Without vision, there is no trust. Vision has nothing to do with signposts. Vision has nothing to do with quick rewards, Vision doesn't have anything to do with, with quick successes of signs of improvement. Vision has to do with an expansive understanding of what meditation is actually about. We need to cultivate that sense of vision. Everything is possible for us. The greatest wisdom, the greatest depth of compassion, the greatest understanding, the greatest empowerment to contribute to the end of suffering, 
the deepest capacities to extend forgiveness and compassion it's all possible for us. This is what we need to be able to trust in. We are blessed with the capacity to be aware. We are blessed with the capacity to be awake. We are blessed with the capacity to learn. The greatest thing in the world, we're never blessed with more than this. never had any more than this. This is what we all have. The willingness to learn, the willingness to deepen. This is all we actually need to trust in. You know, you may doubt lots of things that you hear us say. You may doubt this style. You may doubt this tradition. It's wonderful. That doubt is liberating. That doubt takes us out of the trap of belief systems, of subscribing, of identification. We are not asked to believe in any of this. But we are asked to trust. To trust in our own sense of possibility, our own capacity to deepen, our own capacity to understand, and our own willingness to learn. This trust is accessible to all of us, no matter where we've come from, no matter how terrible our lives have been, no matter how depressed we've been, no matter how how much pain we've experienced in our lives. The capacity to be aware means we have the capacity to begin again. We can let go of all of that. I would like just to speak a little bit about intention and motivation in relationship to the hindrances. Now, many of you, most of you have done retreats before, so you know all about the hindrances of of dullness and sloth and restlessness and negativity and craving and doubt. You, you know all about it. And we, many of you, when you've done retreats in the past, you, we tend to form a rather kind of reassuring relationship with the hindrances. You know, we know them. We, we, we have a sense of their unfoldment. We know that in day one we'll have loss or restlessness, and in day two we might have, you know, little flickers of negativity or craving. Day three we'll wonder what we're doing here and wondering how we can get out. And day four they'll be gone. And we know that that is the kind of basic unfoldment of the hindrances. And, you know, we've had them before, so we don't get so worried about them. We look around in the meditation room. We see other people nodding, fidgeting, you know, wandering around. We know they're having them too. And it all seems like a little club, you know, that we're all kind of going through the hindrances together. And it's not so bad. You know, you don't feel so upset about it because you know you're not alone. Well, you know, and also the great danger, of course, of, of experienced yogis is they get this waiting out syndrome. You know, well, I'll just sit them out. You know, I'll wait them out. I'll just hang out here on my cushion, show up, you know, and, you know, after, after they've gone, then I'll start the retreat. And once they've disappeared. Well, this is a kind of comforting construct, but I really don't think it's that helpful. The hindrances have partially to do with adjustment. I, I agree with you and I acknowledge that. The hindrances have partially to do 
with adjusting to being here, the hindrances have much more to do with control. That is really what the hindrances are about, is our sense of control is threatened. Now often you feel, well, the three days are over, the hindrances are gone, and you feel really good. You know, I've got through those, you know, and now I'm at the other side. But actually what has often happened is that I now feel more in control again. You know, I feel more, more familiar with my environment, more, more familiar with the meditation, more familiar with the people I'm with, and I just feel more control again. And so the hindrances go away. But you can be sure that the hindrances will arise again at any point in our practice where our sense of control is threatened. They are not just kind of temporary aberrations that arise at the beginning of a retreat. They have to do with grasping and the sense of I grasping, wanting security, wanting predictability, and wanting control. Now, this whole area of intention and motivation is very important in working skillfully with the hindrances. It is not enough to wait them out. There's much more, there's no learning in waiting them out. The learning is in understanding how our control is threatened and how much we can let go. How much we can open into that sense of not being in control. For most people it's an extraordinarily scary experience. Most people don't even, are not necessarily even aware of how much they, they treasure control until they come into a retreat and it's suddenly whipped away from them. That's your first encounter in meditation is that you're not in control of anything. I mean, so there's the outer environment you're not in control of. You can't control the roommate who snores. You can't control your sitting partner who fidgets. You can't control your, your schedule. There's always somebody with a bell wandering around telling you what to do. You can't control inwardly. You tell yourself, I should be so happy to be here. What a rare opportunity. How precious. No, I think, oh God, in another 19 days, you know, when can I leave, you know? You, you say, you know, oh, I, I'm just going to pay attention, my mind will be nice and still, I'm just going to pay attention to my breath. Really, how often? How often? Your mind is everywhere. I mean, your mind is just simply not obedient. It doesn't listen to your finest of commands. It is scary. So, of course, in that sense of control, there's certain incomes and hindrances marching in to blanket us from that experience. This is where intention, motivation, inspiration is so important because that is where the willingness to learn is born. What can I learn from this? What can I learn from this? How well can I listen inwardly? How attuned can I stay to this experience? How connected can I be with my sloth? How sensitive can I be to my boredom? To really cultivate that sense of clear intention and the clear sense of vision. This is not who you are. This is nothing to do with who you are. That listening that we learn to cultivate inwardly is the same listening that we learn to extend to the world around us. That listening in itself is the parent of compassion. 
It is the parent of compassion. In in the Buddhist tradition, Kuan Yin, the deity of Kuan Yin, is translated as one who hearkens, one who listens to the sounds of the universe. Listening is the basis of compassion. Not judging, not condemning, not rejecting, not resisting, just being there, cultivating that great generosity of heart, that great patience of heart that allows us to connect expecting nothing. That compassion, that capacity to listen, is one which deepens and opens our sense of vision all the time of why we sit, of why we do this, of why we're here, of what this practice actually offers to us. And I'd like to read you the story of Milarepa, the story of letting go. In the Tibetan tradition, they, they call the hindrances, because it's much more colorful, I'm not afraid to do it here. They call the, the, the hindrances demons. Milarepa was a very great yogi who, I mean, one of the things he was famous for was that he lived on nettles. But he was a very great yogi, he spent many years in solitude. And one day he was out, outside his cave and he was gathering some wood for his fire. And when he got back to the cave, he encountered seven great demons in his cave with bodies the size of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Some were making fire, some were bringing water, some were grinding barley, and some sat doing magical tricks. As soon as Milrata saw them, he was terrified. <coughs> He wondered what earth he could do. So often, as most of us do, he started with his strategies on how to control these demons. He uttered a mantra. He meditated on his deity. He performed a gaze. And he was unable to pacify them. And then he thought, well, maybe these are the local demons who used to live here before me, and I've been living here all this time, and I haven't thanked them or praised them in any way. So he sang a song of praise to the demons. He told them how wonderful the cave was, a fantastic place to meditate, how grateful he was for allowing them, allowing him to be there. And he went on and on and sang this great song of friendliness to the demons. And when he did this, three of the demons disappeared. But Milarepa was still unable to make the other four go away. And he realized that these were really ferocious obstacles. And so instead of telling them how grateful he was, he told them about himself, about what a wonderful yogi he was, how many years he'd spent in solitude, how fantastic his teacher was, how he was a mature meditator who loved to be alone, and how strong he was. And he said to the, to the demons, it's wonderful that you demons came today. You must come again tomorrow. And from time to time we should converse. Three of the remaining demons disappeared. There was one left, the most vicious, the most powerful. And so he signed to this demon. He firstly talked about his own confidence then in his practice, about how he was unafraid, unafraid of anything. And he said to the demon, Demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We'll talk out our differences. 
I have only compassion for you. And with compassion and without concern for his body, Milarepa placed himself in the mouth of the demon, but the demon couldn't eat him and vanished like a rainbow. In our own practice, I feel we learn the wisdom of not controlling. In learning the wisdom of not controlling, we learn the wisdom of listening. And learning the wisdom of listening, this is the place of compassion. It is the place of depth. It's the place of understanding. May all beings live with serenity. May all beings live with clarity. May all beings live with compassion. We just have two minutes sitting and then we have a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.